Could you turn in the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 847 in Article 29 of the Belgian Confession, the marks of the true church? We started on that last Sunday evening when the Woodland Choir was here, and now we're going to continue with that article. And what I'm going to deal with tonight are the, like the positive approach to what the true church is and not talk a whole lot about the false church. And we'll see that in a paragraph, what the false church is all about. But this is what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 29, page 847. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. We're not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it, even though they're physically there. But we're speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and one ought not to be separated from it. For those who can belong to the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of the Christians, namely by faith, by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness, once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh, and it works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. So far, the confession. You might want to keep it open because we're going to be referring to that. You'll see as we go through it. Um, some of the things there. And then in connection with the article 29 of the Belgian Confession, we're going to read three short portions of Scripture that speak to it. So the very first one is from the, um, the book of Amos in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. So toward the end of the Old Testament, you get uh, Amos, Micah, um, what's the one just before? Hosea, Joel, Amos, there chapter 5 and then we're going to read just a couple verses from uh, from that chapter verse 21 and on where the Lord kind of has a few things to say to the people of Israel and they're not nice things verse 21 
chapter 5. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. So far from Amos. And then if you would go to Galatians chapter 5. Letter of Paul to the Galatians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 16. Kind of follows almost from Amos. Let justice roll down and so forth. And this is what Paul writes in Amos in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Brothers, if any someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, for you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For each should carry his own load. So far from Galatians. And then just a couple of verses from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. You know these words well. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, last week Sunday evening we were introduced to a couple by the name of Carter and Susan who with their two children had moved into Kitchener and began looking for a new church. They went to use a popular term which I think is horrible but nonetheless often used, they went church shopping. Meeting those people all the time. And discovering that there's many churches in the KW area, the question was which church ought Carter and Susan to choose and why? What ought the couple to be looking for 
in a church. Now, I use, I'm using a couple with two kids as an example, but you can use this for a single person or, or whatever, and you know that. Besides taking a peek in the nursery or checking out the youth programs or the small groups ministry or the worship style, all things which are important and which draw people, nonetheless, we noted from the Belgic Confession that the answer to Carter, Carter and Susan's question goes way beyond the physical presentation of a building, far beyond the enthusiasm of a youth group, and far beyond the modernity of the nursery. The answer to their question must even go beyond the type of worship services they encounter, and it must go beyond the type of social life that they're able to find in a given congregation. After all, the accessibility of the building, the quality of the sound system, the excitement in the music or the presentation of the message, the modernity of the nursery and all these things do not necessarily a true church make. So looking for a church, Carter and Susan need to do some homework and they need to look deeper and they need to ask some important questions about the church. And as we noted from the Belgic Confession, Article 29, the first thing that anyone who is church shopping ought to take note of is what they hear from the pulpit or in the classrooms. Or, as Woodland Christian High School Choir Director Jonathan Hunts put it last week, they ought to take note of the words in the songs. The very first question that needs to be asked is, does the church engage in the pure preaching of the word? Is the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit recognized? And is the Word the foundation of all that is said and proclaimed? Is the good news of by grace through faith being proclaimed? Is Jesus and Him crucified front and central in the message? And are people called to repentance on the basis of a thus says the Lord type of message? But as Mr. Hunts correctly surmised last week as he introduced David Sherwin's song, When the Poor Ones, Carter and Susan's search for what church to choose ought not to end simply listening, with simply listening to what they hear, for there is more. We dealt with question number one last week. Their search now also ought to include paying attention to what they see. So what ought Carter and Susan to look for? Well, says the Belgian Confession, the second mark of a true church is the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. That's a mark that follows directly from the pure preaching of the word. For as Christ ordained rites or rituals, they are events that ought to confirm what's being preached. In other words, the question is, are the sacraments or the rites and the rituals of the church filled with meaning, and do they cl clearly point to Jesus' sacrifice as the only ground of our salvation? Now, in a few weeks, we're going to be studying the rituals or the sacraments of the church more closely when we look at Articles 33 through 35. But this evening, we get a little preview of what's to come for in order for Carter and Susan to understand what they ought to be looking for, what they ought to see, they need to be reminded of what, sacrament, of what a sacrament is. And there's a wonderful definition of a sacrament in answer 66 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Sacraments are holy signs and seals for us to see, 
God instituted them so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and might put his seal on that promise. And this is God's gospel promise to forgive our sins and give us eternal life by grace alone because of Christ's one sacrifice finished on the cross, unquote. The sacraments then were, as it were, God's God-given audio visuals of the gospel. And so from the pulpit we hear the gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the basis of the pure preaching of the word, Jesus Christ and him crucified for the sins of God's people. And now in the sacraments, in Lord's Supper and in baptism, the message is confirmed. So in baptism, Look, folks, just as water washes away dirt from the body, so the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Look, people, taste and see. Just as this bread is broken and as this juice is poured out for us, so Jesus' body was given and his blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. So in the sacraments, then we act out the words that we hear from the pulpit. And it should be noted that these are not audiovisuals that some preacher or some church made up or thought was kind of cool. But Jesus Christ himself commanded us to carry out these signs and seals. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said to his disciples and consequently to the whole church, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, And during the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and drank the wine with his disciples, he commanded them, do this in remembrance of me. Which later on, the Apostle Paul explains as being the institution of the Lord's Supper. So it's important to understand that the Lord Jesus instituted the sacraments that the church engages in even yet today and will engage in until Christ comes again. Through these two signs and seals, we are helped to see, we are helped to understand what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us by grace, which we heard in the preaching of the word. And because they are so closely tied up with the preaching of the word, although not on the same level as the, as the word itself, they must be purely administered and carefully administered. Now, when making sure that the sacraments are purely administered, Debray does so by making the distinction between the true and the false church. The false church, he says in Article 29, if you catch it there, does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word, but adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. And in that comment, the writer makes some statements and judgments about the church of his day. And we're going to get into that a whole lot more when looking at both the Lord's Supper and baptism later later on in the season. But at this point, remember that the Lord instituted sacraments in order to affirm what's preached in the word and to feed us thereby. They declare that what's being preached in the word is true and they were given to the church by Jesus 
to be used publicly together with the preaching. Sacraments are not to be private matters, nor ought they to exist apart from the word. That's why baptism and Lord's Supper is always celebrated in the context of the worshiping community. Well, besides looking at whether or not the sacraments affirm the preaching of the word, when Carter and Susan are looking at what church to go to, they ought to also consider how sincerely and honestly the sacraments are being carried out within the community of believers they may be attending. After all, in Israel, the people were living in sin, trusting in gods other than the true God of Israel, not caring very much for the poor, and so on. And yet, in spite of their disobedience, they did a wonderful job of carrying out the feasts and the rituals taught them. They performed all the sacrifices just as God had commanded them. They did worship correctly. They were faithful in observing worship opportunities, and yet God said, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. I have no regard for your offering. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Stop it. Stop pretending. The problem with Israel was that their heart was not in it. There was no true faith. They were merely going through the motions. The meaning was not there. They were not living according to the word of God in obedience and thanksgiving. They were merely play acting. And while they may have thought, while they may have done a wonderful job of acting, they actually did more harm than good, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 17. For they not only made a mockery of God and the things he had given to the people whereby they were to come into his presence, but they caused other people to stumble as well. And while they did not, while they did all the right religious things, their lives, their lives, away from all those right religious things, did not jive or match up. And God was angry with such people. And eventually, they were taken into exile, and all their feasting and religious rites added up to nothing. Pure administration of the sacraments, which brings us to the next thing that Carter and Susan ought to be looking for. Namely, how does the church, or how do the members of the church live out their faith? First of all, do they have a true faith? And if they do, then how do they live that out? In other words, even beyond the preaching of the word and the confirmation of the word in the sacraments, there's another thing to look for, something which actually flows out of what they hear and see. And that is, as Debray puts it in Article 29, it practices church discipline for correcting faults, or as Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Such a church will also govern itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head, says Article 29. Discipline is a mark of the true church. Now, if we think of that word discipline for a moment, then we should note that the word dis discipline comes from the same root word as the word disciple. And a disciple is a follower, in this case, of the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciplined Christian 
is someone who understands who the Lord is and understands God's will for life and then lives accordingly. And when we think of this in terms of the church, we note that a disciplined church is one that follows the commands and teachings of the Lord as they come to us through the pure preaching of the word. So a disciplined church is one which is bound to the word of God. It is one which places itself in submission to the authority of the word of God, a word that's not dead, but very much alive, since it's God-breathed. As one writer put it, quote, all who undermine the authority of the word rob themselves and others of hearing the voice of the Savior. They have exchanged the word of the living God for the shifting opinions and theories of men, unquote. And there was a group in Galatia that we saw last week. There was, there was a group of people called the Judaizers who basically proclaimed that in order for one to become a Christian, he had to become a Jew first. All sorts of Jewish rites and ceremonies, most particularly circumcision, were still considered to be binding in the New Testament church. And they felt that Paul was not preaching the pure word of God. He was making it too easy for the Gentiles to become Christians by removing all sorts of old legal requirements which the Jews had lived for with for centuries. But Paul makes it quite clear that the Judaizers and Peter, who was agreeing with them, with them were all wrong. So he writes in Galatians 3, or in chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he was clearly in the wrong. He's doing discipline there. And he writes in, in chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The church must have discipline when it comes to the preaching of the word and to the administration of the sacraments. And those activities must be Christ-centered and alive. But even beyond the supervision of the word and the sacraments, the church involves itself in the supervision, in the discipline, or the discipleship of each of its members in various ways, through the work of the elders, through pastoral calls, through teaching of small groups, through youth programs, through mentoring, and so forth. You see, it's not like once you are a Christian that you continue through life on your own with no accountability. We talked about that with those who are planning to make profession of faith they submit to the authority of the church and we talk about so what does that mean the church has authority the church has the right to discipline as part of the body of christ we are accountable first of course to the lord but beyond that we are accountable to the broader body of believers over which the office bearers have been placed in jesus name and we're called upon to keep each other on on the straight and narrow so to speak we're called upon to carry each other's burdens, as Galatians 6, 2 puts it. And while some would consider that to be the task solely of the elders, actually it's the task of all of us. So we're called upon to look out for each other, to care for each other, to call each other to repentance when that is needed. We must be involved in mutual encouragement and Christian nurture. nurture. And so a fourth thing that Carter and Susan ought to be looking for when they are church shopping is what are the members or what's the body doing with the things they have heard and seen practiced? What's the body doing with the gospel, with that wonderful message of by grace through faith? 
It's one thing to sit here week after week and take it in. It's quite another thing to actually do something with it. What's happening? Well, something ought to be happening because we were, after all, saved to serve, writes Paul in Ephesians. A Christian's life must be marked by obedience, by works. So if one declares true faith in Jesus Christ, if one declares that he or she loves Jesus, then, says the Guido de Bray, says the Bible, that must be proven. That must be made concrete in their life for all to see. And also part of that means that we flee from the acts of the sinful nature. What acts? Galatians 5, 19 gives us a good idea as to what the Bible calls the acts of the sinful nature that we ought to flee from. The first one listed is sexual immorality. It's interesting that's the first one listed. Now we can do sermon series on all of this too. But that's the first one that's listed. It's interesting that that's first one because it's, it's listed first because it's an area in which we are so vulnerable. Pornography. Lustful thoughts, affairs, common in our society. But they must be run away from, much like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Then the apostle goes on to talk about impurity and debauchery or lawlessness, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. He's got the unity of the body of Christ in mind there. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. All things that go contrary to the Spirit of God. All things that show the sinfulness of the human race. But in following or pursuing righteousness, the believer, the true believer, ought to leave such things behind because they're just the opposite from an obedient, God-glorifying lifestyle. When we go along with the desires of the flesh or of the world, we're on dangerous ground. Our eternal standing with the Lord may even be in question. And therefore, the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 warned the people to whom he's preaching, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from a corrupt generation. True believers, true Christ confessors, says the, says the Belgian Confession, will show in their lives that they are people above reproach. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the sinful nature and its passions and desires, writes the Apostle in Galatians 5.24. That is to say, true Christians are no longer to be controlled by their sinful natures. Instead, they exhibit in their lives the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In obedience to the Word of God, the believer's life priorities are such that they love God above all and their neighbor as themselves. What do you see in the people in church? Our lifestyle and our confession, the confession of our lips ought to be the same. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Don't kid yourself. Hypocrisy saying one thing and doing another is one of the issues that so terribly hurts the church. There are many people who have walked away from the church because the people in the, in the pews were perceived as not being genuine about their faith. Man, if that's what Christianity is about, who needs it? 
If Christianity ultimately makes no difference in a person's life or in the world, who needs it? The marks of a true believer are faith and works of obedience, all, of course, in response to the salvation granted in Christ Jesus, which they heard through the pure preaching of the word and which is confirmed in the sacraments. So as Sue Carter and Susan are searching for a true church, they also had to ask some questions about those who sit in the pews. To use the words of Article 29, do they love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or the left? Do they crucify the flesh and its works? Pure preaching of the word, pure administration of the sacraments, and discipline. Those are the traditional three marks put forth by the Belgic Confession, and Article 29 uses them to explain the difference between the true church and the false church. But out of that flows one more. One more thing that Carter and Susan ought to be looking for when considering the church, and that is how is that body living up to Jesus' marching orders as he pronounced in the Great Commission? What is the church doing with the mandate to make disciples of all nations, a mandate given to all of us, young and old alike? Literally, you know, the Great Commission reads, Having gone, therefore make disciples. Or, wherever you are or find yourself, make disciples. So the disciples were called upon to share faith, first of all, with those in Jerusalem, but beyond the walls of Jerusalem, even to Europe itself. Because this Christian faith in the true church is not a private, me, alone type of faith. It's a faith that needs to be shared with others. That's the very nature of the gospel. A true church in obedience to Christ is a church that shares the good news with others. Well, as Carter and Susan shop around, they need to do some homework. Before looking at the nursery or the building or the youth group or small groups or the worship, they need to ask some deeper questions. Is there pure preaching of the word? Is there true administration of the sacraments? Is there accountability and discipline in Jesus' name? How is the body living into the gospel? Are they sharing it with others? Is this a true body of Christ? in which I can rest. Amen. Father in heaven, your word teaches us a lot about the church, your body. As people go shopping, people go looking as to what church they, they want to make their home in or be part of, we pray, Lord, that they may look beyond just the peripheral things, just the surfacey stuff, that they may look deeply at what's happening in the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us discerning people and that you would make your people in the communities and, and around the world discerning people and not just accepting everything and anything at face value. Thank you that we may ask questions within the body of believers and within the church. We pray, O oh Lord, that we may be a true 
church and forgive us where we fail. Help us to be true to your word, to proclaim your word with all of its glory and all of its warning. Help us, Lord, to administer and to participate in the sacraments meaningfully. Help us to be a people who hold each other accountable and who practice discipline. And help us to be a people also, O oh Lord, who desire that this world knows about you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lord, Savior, and King. Grant us your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, so that we may live in such a way that we bring glory and honor to your name. As we go from here, we pray that you would grant us your peace. And we pray that as we go from here, we may know that no matter where we are, what we do, where we find ourselves, underneath are the everlasting arms of a Lord who never, ever lets us go. To you be the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>